So let me begin the sermon with a disclaimer. There are going to be two parts to the sermon this morning. Unfortunately for some of you, and fortunately for others, the first part is going to be fairly philosophical. Now, some of you are going to love this. We have a few philosophers in the church. Some of you are going to love it either by your education and your training or by your inclination. You just like thinking in these kinds of ways. Thinking in kind of analytic ways makes sense to you. Now, I know that this is not for everyone. I know that for the first part of the sermon, when I do this, um, for, for some of you, it, it's not about intelligence. It's about the way our minds are structured. Um, some of you, this is going to be hard. And so I just beg your patience. Now, the good news is that the second half of the sermon I'm probably going to have to beg the patience of the philosophically oriented because I'm going to talk a lot about feelings. And um, the second part of the sermon is going to be structured not by analysis, but by imagination. So hopefully there's something for the whole person, the right and left brain child, and all of those in between. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to the passage that we've just heard read. Our gospel passage for the day, Luke chapter 2. If, if you're new to the Bible or you're unfamiliar with it, then feel free to use the table of contents. Luke chapter 2. Notice the very first sentence of this, of this section of Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised... Here's Jesus, right? The Bible is one story. It's, it's a single story. Now, it's huge and it's complex, but it's a story. And Jesus is the hero of the story of the Bible. And here is Jesus, the central character of the Bible, going through a ritual that is prescribed for Jews by God in the Old Testament. His parents are obeying the law. The law of God given to God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, in the Old Testament. We see this in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And, and that's not the only place. If you listen close to the reading, there is a lot of law, a lot of obedience going on in this story. Verse 22, it's there in verse 21. Then in the second verse of the story, and when the time came for their purification according to the law. Then the next verse, they present him to the Lord as it is written in the law. And then the, the very end of the story, they performed everything in verse 39 according to the law. This is a lot of law in, in a short amount of time. This obedience, this obedience to law, this commitment to ritual in this account of the life of Jesus, it is presented in a positive way. There's no negative view of it. There's no negative connotation. There's no bristling of it. There's no deconstructing of it. Now, this is hard for a lot of us. This kind of positive view of ritual and law is hard for many people today because the modern view is that true religion, the best kind of religion, the kind that is living and effective, is internal. Opposed to 
merely external. That, that true religion is inner and it's spiritual. This is our modern view. It's been created for us. People didn't always feel that way about religion. It's a new way of feeling about religion. It was invented for us by those who birthed the Enlightenment. It's been created for us. We feel this way because our society through philosophy, sociology, and theology, has convinced us that this is the difference between good and bad religion. It's whether it's deeply felt internally or pushed over against ritual and external. Nietzsche was one of the key inventors of this view of religion. Nietzsche said, Jesus is, this is Nietzsche, right? Jesus' teachings, a quote from him, are a flight from the weir- real world into the inner life. Nietzsche said that. That doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Friedrich Nietzsche. Immanuel Kant said true piety is about your thoughts and your morality. See, internal stuff. The early Hegel said true religion is inner religion. Our modern society views religion as an inward thing Christianity, when Christians who are born in the Enlightenment have this basic plausibility, whether you know it or not, whether you've ever read Hegel or Kant or any of these guys, when this is churning around in the plausibility structure of your society, Christians begin to say things like Christianity is about if you really believe it, if you really own it. Now, there's this ambivalence in this view to physical things, to rituals, to creation. This way of looking at Christianity, it it, it presupposes a really sharp distinction between the kind of religion expressed in the Old Testament and the kind of religion expressed in the New Testament. So when you have this view inside of you, whether you've ever thought about it or not, and you read the Old Testament and it feels foreign to you, and it falls prey to all of your critique, ritual, hypocrisy, external, and then you begin to think the Old Testament is distinguished from the New Testament on the level of this. On the level that the Old Testament was about law and ritual, and the New Testament is about heartfelt devotion and piety. The New Testament is about worship in spirit and in truth. And when you have this view, you think that means that the New Testament is critiquing the Old Testament as externally based and that real religion, real Christianity is a spontaneous, authentic feeling. That's Jane Austen. That's romanticism. Now, so many of us have a default negative attitude toward the way of relating to God in the Old Testament. And it's not because of what the Bible actually teaches. It's because of the lens we accidentally bring to the Bible. So it causes us to read a passage like this where it's law, 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 ritualized circumcision. And just not even notice it's critiquing a negative view of that. By presupposing a positive view of it. 
The reason some people think that there's, there's an anti-ritual element in the New Testament is not because the New Testament has an anti-ritual, anti-law, anti-obedience element to it. It doesn't. Pound for pound, Jesus gives more commands than the Old Testament. People who say the Old Testament is an angry God and the New Testament is a gracious God, you haven't actually read them. Pound for pound, Jesus gives more command than any other character in the Bible. The reason some of us feel that there's a difference between obedience and love, law and grace, ritual and authentic devotion, the reason we feel and think that these things are are opposed instead of organically related is, is because the plausibility structure of modernity is committed to a certain view of what it means to be human. The whole concept of personal identity in modern in modern society is this. The real you is inner, inward. This is a college student who thinks they can wear pajamas to class and demand that no one judge them because what's going on externally is not a reflection of the authentic inner life. I, I'm serious. This, this sharp demarcation. Don't judge my external as if, it, as, as, it, if, as if it's really connected to my internal. This whole concept of personal identity that your external life, things like rituals, they can't affect the real you. They can only skim the surface of your personality. That's Plato. That your soul, the real you, is imprisoned in your body. The husk, the prison, the shell. This is Descartes. That your rational self is the real you imprisoned in a physical body. Now what I'm getting at in this detour into philosophy is that the view that the Old Testament religion was ritual, was external, was flawed. And that New Testament religion, Christianity, is about deep, inner, heartfelt, authentic, Jane Austen-like proclamations of love. This way of looking at it is wrong. This way of looking at things leads us to think that rituals function as merely aids. As, as visual teaching moments. As examples, it leads us to the kind of view that the only purpose of art is if art has this deeply functional evangelistic move to it. And if the art doesn't mean something that I can, that I can express in propositions, if I can't use it, then it's lavish, it's exceptional, it's unnecessary. This, this idea that the real encounter between God and a person takes place inside your soul and not on your body. Right? Because if the real you is inside, then the real God is concerned about that and he just kind of disregards the body. Then the real act of, 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 of exchange with God occurs there. Instead of, we actually engage God with our body. And God actually engages us, which is not an inner person, 
Us, me, I, am an organic unity of physical and inner. You don't, it's not one or the other. That's the flaw of modernity. It's that they're organically deeply related. I mean, if you cut my hand off, me, I, the real me inside has a problem. <laughs> These are related to one another. This idea that the real encounter with God can only take place on an inward level. That's disconnected from your body. By the way, this is, this is what underlines our approach to sex in our culture. I can do things with my body, right? That aren't deeply connected with the real me. It is the same premise that underlines the view of tattoos in our culture. So many other issues in our culture build off of this basic philosophy. I'm not saying sex is wrong. I'm not saying tattoos are wrong. I'm saying there's a deeper reality. Now, this idea that rituals have no potency, that they only express invisible realities, that what matters is what takes place behind the ritual, in the heart. This way of thinking about the world and the way God works in it and in our lives, it's dangerous because it distorts the truth. Notice in our passage this morning, not only is there an emphasis on keeping the law through ritual and obedience, but there's also an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Now that means kept the law. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Right there together. Not, but the Holy Spirit was upon him. Like, I know this is going to be different to you. These are two different moves. Then in verse 26, we're told it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see his death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And then in verse 27, he came in the Spirit. This is a man who walks in the Spirit, is led by the Spirit, is anointed by the Spirit, is full of the Spirit. So think about this. On the one hand, we've got all of this keeping of the law that throughout the passage... It comes up and we've simultaneously got this issue of God working through his spirit in people's lives. And what we see is that behind both law and spirit is God. It is God's law and God's spirit and they work together. God is using both of them to choreograph this amazing cluster of encounters Between the Holy Family and and Simeon. And the Holy Family and Anna. And the Holy Family and the Temple. God is acting through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Which brings Simeon and Anna into the Temple at just the right time. And at just the right place. Don't think of the Temple as some building. It is a complex. It is a small city. It is massive. There are many, many entrances and buildings and courtyards. And the, and the passage is clearly saying to you, God is the orchestra director. He's choreographing this so that Anna shows up at the right time, at the right place. And so does Simeon. And so does the Holy Family. They're showing up led by the Spirit. But notice, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are showing up led by the law. The result of this choreography is a rendezvous between God operating through the law and the Spirit and his people. Now, there are many, many ways we need to reflect on this in our lives because it is all over us. But this morning, we need to see how this relates to baptism. 
Because in a few minutes, Nicholas Singh Dillon will be baptized. And baptism is a ritual. And if you think that what's going on is merely an example, merely a picture, you're missing it. Because in just the next chapter, we're here 221, he's circumcised. In chapter 321, Jesus is baptized. And at his baptism, the Spirit of God comes down, he anoints him. And he, I mean, something happens in the ritual. In fact, when Nicholas is baptized, God's grace is going to pour out on him. Through the physical action. God is going to do something amazing to Nicholas. He's going to pour out his spirit on Nicholas. That's what Paul says happens in baptism, right? The foundational baptism in the Bible is Jesus. And then when Paul in Romans 6 comes along and reflects on it, he says the same thing. He says, all right, in that moment, you're adopted as the son of God. God's spirit pours out on you. Your sins are forgiven. You're included in the family. All, every time you read the word baptism in the Bible, you need to... You need to know that 99% of the time, it is about the ritual, not baptism as a metaphor for praying the Lord's Prayer or the, the sinner's prayer. It's talking about baptism. So what's going to happen to Nicholas? He's going he's to be blessed by God. He's going to have the Spirit of God come upon him. He's going to be forgiven of his sins. He's going to be led into the covenant family. And after baptism, God will look at Nicholas different than he did before. He will look at him as my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, some of us don't like to say that baptism can do stuff like this. But look, it's still with us. We still have some of this in our culture today. I'm a priest. I'm a pastor. if, If you went through a certain ritual with me, you would be married to somebody else. And that would have legal impact in your life. When I say certain words in a certain ritual, there will be an objective effect of that that will take a lot of money on your behalf to change. (laughs) See, we still know that in a certain moment, when certain words are said, certain person can become the president of the United States. Now, could I stand in, could, you know, Sloan and a friend of his stand in the backyard and say, I do, I do. Would they be married? No, they wouldn't be. Can you take the vows of... Pre- Sorry, Sloan. Can, if you took the vow of presidency some afternoon with friends, does that make you president? No. But the government of America and the people of America have authorized that when it's done in a certain way at a certain time, it actually affects a reality. God has authorized baptism to actually affect reality. Now, if our government can authorize a ritual to change reality, do we really think God can't? And behind our resistance to it is not Bible. It's philosophy. It's anti-ritual, anti-matter modernism. Now, of course, baptism doesn't guarantee eternal salvation. A baptized person can renounce Christ and reject everything that is being confessed Upon their behalf this morning. Nicholas could forget that he was baptized. But here's the deal. Having passed through the waters. Every action after that. Are the actions of someone who has been baptized. You can get get married. And then you can break that relationship and get divorced. But every action after you get married. Is as the one who is married. And you live like you're not married long enough. And you'll shatter the marriage. 
live like you're not baptized long enough, you will shatter your relationship to God. So baptism is a sheer, it's an act of sheer grace. Nicholas didn't choose his parents. He didn't choose to be born in this land. He didn't choose Christianity. And most of the most significant issues in your life, you didn't get to play in. You didn't get to pick who you were born to. You didn't get to pick where you were born. It's this kind of Kantian notion of freedom as the freedom to choose, which causes us to rebel against the notion that Christianity can enter somebody's life without their choice. Now, Nicholas will grow up to have a choice. Nicholas is going to spend the remainder of his life learning to be a Dylan. Learning to know what it means for Verander and Elizabeth to be his parents. It's a lifelong project. But more profoundly, he will spend the rest of his life growing into his baptism. As a child of the Heavenly Father. A brother of his older brother, Jesus the Christ. He will spend the rest of his life walking in the spirit of having been adopted by God in his infancy. If you think it's unethical for adults to adopt babies, then maybe you can think it's unethical for God to adopt children while they're babies. But if you're okay with one, be consistent. Now, let's shift away from this kind of philosophical trying to come to grips with why all this emphasis on law and ritual And let's pick up the other brained people in the room. I want you to imagine something. Come with me in your imagination to the temple. It's a spring afternoon. In your imagination, see this expansive precinct. It's massive. It's the size of a small town. See the temple building itself and all the courtyards and smaller buildings. Plenty of room for people to come and go to walk about and meet one another. There are crowds milling around as usual. Rich people strolling by with friends and hangers on. Soldiers from the occupying force looking down from their watchtowers. Animals and birds being bought and sold in marketplaces within the temple precinct. Lots of beggars hoping they can cash in on people's religious compassion. And it's full of old people sitting in the shade here. In a doorway there. And in this massive hustling and bustling area. Most people don't notice a young couple. Coming in through one of the gates. With their baby. Don't really notice it because there's so much of that. But as they walk through. Suddenly there's an old man. Who stands up. And makes his. Crooked beeline for them. What's he thinking? What's that strange look in his eyes? What's he going to do? He walks to this couple. And you're almost as alarmed as the parents are. By his intrusiveness. And then suddenly they hand the child. To him. If your Bible said he took the child. It's, it's, it's a wrong translation. It's literally, he received the child into his bent arms. And his movement, his embrace, it's as gentle and firm as the love of God. He's seen something nobody else has seen. 
He's been praying and waiting for this moment all his life. And now it comes. This is the Messiah, the true world ruler, the Lord, the Savior, the real king of the world instead of Caesar. And the old man, he's seen with his own eyes this thing. And he says, now I can die in peace. What would you feel? What would you think if you saw this? How does it strike you? What feelings rise up in you? What does it make you want to do? What does it make you want to pray to see this? The old man waiting his turn to die, worshiping God day and night and praying for God's salvation. Does it make you thankful for the elderly that you know who have been faithful to God throughout their lives, who are now approaching their graves in a serene peace? Does it give you a sense of how Christians, how those of us who see Jesus, who really see him, who recognize him, who like Simon recognize him as the light and the glory and the consolation of the world. How those of us who have taken Jesus like Simeon into our arms, into our hearts and lives. Does it give you a sense of how you too can move toward death in peace? In that moment. When Simeon receives Jesus into his bent arms, can you see him receiving Jesus with his entire being? His entire person, his body, his inner self, his thoughts and feelings, all of it. Have you done that? Have you received Jesus into the totality of your life? Have you had a whole person response, a whole person engagement with Jesus? In Jesus, God has brought salvation to the world. The one and only creator God has brought to the world healing, mending, wholeness, forgiveness. Have you been led by the Holy Spirit of God into the temple of Jesus, his church? See, that's our job. You need to read this passage with your imagination. And you need to say, am I Mary? Am I Joseph? Am I bringing the best of my life into God's temple, which today is the church, the Bible says? Are you striving to save yourself, to heal yourself, to fix yourself? Are you doing this apart from the powerful work of God available to you if you would just receive Jesus? What about Anna, this elderly woman after seven years of marriage? Her husband passes away and she doesn't remarry. She's a young woman when she gets married. She's probably 14 when she gets married. So how old is she when she most likely becomes a widow? 21. The age of so many people in this room. Do you read that and are you struck by how her life challenges the idolatry of marriage in our society today and in the church today? That through direct and indirect means sends out all kinds of signals that if you're not married, something's wrong. Do you see how Anna's steadfast commitment at 21 years of age to embrace the vocation of singleness... Stands up and trumpets among us a way of living that our culture through its romanticism and our church through its confusion has lost today. Do you see how what she does countless men and women across the ages have done? 
She embraces singleness as a vocation, a calling that enables her to do something she couldn't have done if she was married. It enables her to offer an extraordinary devotion to God. And in a world where meals have a significant influence and are significantly important. We're going to keep going through the Gospel of Luke. And all through Luke's Gospel, meals are important. They're good. They're powerful. And in a world that is so centered around the social fabric of the meal, here she is fasting as a form of protest that the world is not right. I turn my back on this part. As a form of protest to God that it's broken. As a form of prayer. God mend this world. Set things right. Can you see her making her way to this child. Recognizing that this child is God's answer to six decades of prayer and hope. Of patient waiting for God to keep his covenant. His promise to bring healing to the world. Do you see her? Like the shepherds before her and like so many Christians since and like so many of us in this room have just done in the Christmas season. Can you see her response to the child is praising God and telling other people about him? How does this affect you? When you reflect on this portion of scripture, when you really do engage with it and draw yourself into it and open your heart and your mind and imagination to it, how do you feel? What does it make you want to do? What does it make you want to pray? Does it challenge you to reflect on what you should be praying for in your life? Right? What were Anna and Simeon praying for? Does their prayer for this challenge your prayers? Does it make you recognize that your prayers are consumed with daily bread, which is a part of praying, but not all of praying? Does it challenge you to reflect on what you should be praying for your life in this world and for your own family? Does it challenge you to reflect on what you should be patiently persevering and waiting and hoping and trusting for God to do in your life and in your family life? And in your world and in your community and in this justice system and in our immigrant dilemma and in all of these problems we face. Does it challenge you what you should be hoping for? For decades, if necessary, before you can die. I encourage you to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you the wisdom and the inspiration to pray for what you are supposed to pray for. So that you can recognize the moment when it arrives. And what about the young couple, Mary and Joseph, bringing the child into the temple, bringing the child into God's presence, dedicating this remarkable gift of a baby like Hannah dedicating Simon, um, Samuel, this remarkable gift, dedicating, consecrating him to God with hearts that are full of questions and fears and doubts. As you see them handing the baby into the arms of Simeon and hearing from Simeon wisdom and confirmation, is there something in your own life for which you need to hand it to God and receive wisdom and confirmation? Everyone has a role to play in the drama of God's redemption of this world. Every one of us has a role to play. Your role is your vocation. What is it? Or have you followed followed some modern Gnostic kind of divorce that there's work and there's spiritual things? 
For some of you, your vocation will be active and obvious, working in the public eye, perhaps preaching the gospel or taking the love of God to meet the practical needs of the world or laboring in politics on a local or city or community or regional or national level or maybe teaching or performing or organizing. For some others, it'll be a quiet vocation away from public view. Praying faithfully for God to act in fulfillment of his promises to make all things new. Laboring as a homemaker, a secretary, an administrator, being a faithful neighbor. For many of us, our vocation will be a combination. Sometimes active, sometimes private, sometimes engaged, sometimes reflective, sometimes public, sometimes quiet. What is your vocation? What role has God made you to play in the drama of redemption? What role does your career have in the drama of redemption? Mary and Joseph needed Simeon and Anna on that day at that moment. And Simeon and Anna needed Mary and Joseph and the child. They had been waiting on them. Now they can die in peace. What is your vocation? What is your role to play in God's drama of making all things new? Let's pray.